Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode has descriptions of violence and war. So this, this picture is of a British journalist who was a hostage of ISIS and he became part of that media wing through being coerced. And he's right here at Rafadine Bank in that picture. Can he remember that journalist or, or, or the day he was filmed there, that day by Islamic State? He will have a Sahafi Britannican Asir Andul Dawash. I'm walking down a street of of tided ruins. The debris and dust have actually been swept from the pavement, but the shrapnel pits and scars remain. There's ruined buildings on either side. There's very few people, there's a few passers-by, and just a couple of shops and a couple of stallholders. Yet this was once a thriving thoroughfare on Mosul's west side. It was here, in Iraq's second city, that John Cantley next appeared for the film Inside Mosul. Now here I am on the streets of Mosul. It just goes to show the stretch of the territory of the Islamic State hold all the way from Kobani, and there I am in the background, all the way here in Mosul, and here I am on the streets. That was me then, and this is me now, and it just shows how much territory the Islamic State are controlling. And in trying to work out John's fate in this city, I travelled to Mosul, and pretty quickly, as I retraced John's footsteps down the Jaffe Street, I met Iraqis who had met John. More than 10 minutes he was here. He talked with me, and he, like, laughed. And uh, when I, uh, the, dua, uh, the Daesh says, he is a journalist, he will make a report, and we will let him go. The first among them was a soap seller, Amar Ghanem. John buys soap from me. I told them, you don't need to pay. The ISIS one said, no, 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 you have to have it, the money. How much did John pay for the soap? Can you remember? He said, no, he didn't pay. The ISIS paid. The last clues we have to the British journalist John Cantley's fate are to be found in the series of films he presented for Islamic State. Lend Me Your Ears, in which he's quite clearly a captive inside Kobani in Syria, where he appears to have morphed into a war reporter for ISIS. And then, inside Mosul, in northern Iraq. This film, Inside Mosul, marks a new development in John's struggle to survive. Mosul is also the city where the films come to an abrupt end. Anthony Lloyd has been retracing John Cantley's steps in search of answers. Every subsequent media appearance for Islamic State by John is in Mosul, and Mosul holds the key to John Cantley's fate. Ever since John Cantley was kidnapped a decade ago, his family were told by the Foreign Office that they were doing all they could to find him. And yet, on the streets of Mosul, the city that holds the secrets to John Cantley's fate, there's no sign that anybody has ever come looking for John. 
Apart from us, has anyone ever come to ask you about what happened to John Canley or or your appearance in that video? You are the first people who ask me about John Canley. In this episode, we take the investigation to the streets of Mosul, inside what was once a stronghold of the Islamic State, the city where John Cantley was last seen alive. But first, a quick reminder. Last time on Last Man Standing. Seeing as I've been abandoned by my government and my fate now lies in the hands of the Islamic State, I have nothing to lose. John Cantley shocked the world by appearing in a series of Islamic State propaganda videos. But as he railed against the British government for its hostage policy, which had robbed them all of any hope, back in London, those films were being seen as evidence that John Cantley had turned. Inside the military and inside the Foreign Office, there was two schools of thought. He's either now actually a burden to us, or he's worse, he's been turned and has become a sympathiser because of Stockholm Syndrome. And then if you add to that, all the others are dead, there's not really much point rescuing or trying to get John Cantley out. I remember at the time a serving British general saying if ever John Cantley makes it back alive, he should be tried for treason. He is a traitor. I'm Manveen Rana, and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times. Episode 7, Inside Mosul. When Islamic State swept into the Iraqi city of Mosul, for many of its residents, who suddenly found themselves living in the caliphate, their city began to feel like an enormous jail. Power, water and phone lines have been cut in parts of Mosul, where ISIS has seized the important transportation and administration hub. The voice of a refugee in this video pleading, God help us, as half a million Iraqis have already fled the city. So when John Cantley appeared in December 2014, for some of the people he met in Mosul, it offered a glimmer of hope. When we see John, the British journalist here, in the beginning I become happy. I say maybe it's a hope. He's a journalist. He will show what's happening with us to all the world, what's happening, what's the pain we have here, how we live in the jail under ISIS. But that wasn't the sort of reporting that John Cantley was there to do. Instead, in January 2015, a new film appeared, titled Inside Mosul. And everywhere you look, everywhere you come, here in this old, old suits, one of the oldest in Mosul, 
uh, was struck by just how whoop, normal and crazy and busy everything is. This is not a city living in fear, as the Western media would have you believe. This is just a normal city going about its daily business. He's basically taking the viewer on a tour of Iraq's second city, which by that stage had already been held by Islamic State for six months, promoting Mosul as Islamic State would like it to be seen. Mm. And during the course of that film, so he walks down a Jaffe Street, which at the time is a major shopping centre on the West Bank. And, you know, as he's doing it, he looks like he's having fun. Oh, he's got a glint in his eye. And he is having fun as well, because I went to shop to Najafi Street and found people who had met him, and they remember he was having fun. John come here, and he yeah. said he was love and talk. He said, I cannot imagine he was captured hostage with him. And he, he was free, one person was with him, and uh, he laughed. He brought some soap, he brought some sweets, went around, had a chat. He had a very easy, relaxed relationship, actually, with the Islamic State crew who were working with him. He was still a prisoner, but he was familiar with that team. He knew them. And that's very apparent on camera, too. Yeah, he doesn't look scared. And he seems more himself. His presenting style sort of has more of a bounce in it. He he looks really enthusiastic. He does look enthusiastic. And also, at one point, he's by the old Nineveh Wall, actually on the East Bank. And a drone, a coalition drone, is flying overhead. And he, you know, responds to that. There's a trace of anger there. He mocks the drone. He's like, oh, what are you going to do? Come and try and rescue me again, referring to the July the 4th failed Special Forces Mm. rescue attempt of the previous year. He's just ad-libbing to it and he holds his hands up in the sky. Do something useless. Useless. Absolutely useless. And actually, the video then, he tours around the city, goes to the university, and he ends it riding a, a ISIS police motorbike. And you can see it's a bit of a bit of a wobble because, you know, he's tipping his cap to his old biking days and he clearly hasn't been on a bike for a while. And he's got a, <laughs> an ISIS guy riding pillion with a gun behind him. He's looking, he's looking okay. He's still a prisoner. He's still playing to stay alive. But there's, he's got a bit of flash, a bit of a land to his style. We are patrolling the streets of Mosul. It's been a while since I've ridden a motorcycle, so <laughs> excuse me if I wobble around a bit, but it seems that the police are almost redundant despite having a very firm presence here in Mosul. There's really very little crime being committed. Nothing like the police before who would run at the slightest sign of trouble. Anyway, we got to go and patrol now. Just looking at it, he looks very different again, doesn't he? He's lost the beard. He looks quite healthy, comparatively. John looks pretty cool in Inside Mosul. He's clean-shaven. He's got quite a cool haircut. Seems that maybe his hair's dyed. There's certainly no trace of the grey, which you saw earlier. But he's wearing westernised clothes. He's wearing jeans, sort of bomber jacket. He's got spring in his step. He's got a bit of a smile. He's a good presenter anyway. He's got the gift of the gab. Today we're on top of the world 
in Mosul. It's the absolute heartland of the caliphate and home to nearly two million people from every walk of life. By retracing John's steps around the city, Anthony was able to track down shopkeepers and stall owners, people he could see in the background of the film, people who John had stopped and chatted to and who were still there in Mosul, to find out what John had been like when the cameras were switched off. The Iraqis who had encountered John in Mosul making those videos could not distinguish at all that John was a captive. They just thought he was part of Islamic State. So it's not just that he looks comfortable on screen. Off screen too, when the camera stops, he's quite comfortable in this crowd. Certainly in inside Mosul, which was filmed over a number of locations across the city, anyone who saw John working with the Islamic State cameraman that he was working with described his relationship as very relaxed. They said they could never have told that he was a captive. In fact, one of the guys who John met Amar Ghanan, the soap seller. One of the times, he saw him on the other bank on the east side at the Jandul restaurant having lunch with his media team. I see him and I say hi to him. He was eating in the restaurant or just... ISIS was with him in the restaurant and he was eating in Jandul, Lahmajin restaurant. And he said, you know, they're all sitting down quite happily having lunch together. How easy was it to find people who'd met John. I mean, how did you go about retracing his steps? I just downloaded the video on my phone and went travelling around the city with an Iraqi friend from Mosul who knew roughly where the locations were. I mean, Najafi Street's a very famous street. Any Mosul guy will look at you and say, oh yeah, I know that, that's Najafi Street. Hmm. There's a bridge by the university, and that's very obvious too. But then you get, you know, Google Earth and you start geolocating the places. It takes you... A bit of time, but I mean, we could place every single scene, every single location that John Cantley appeared, not just in that film, but in subsequent films. Some of those places have really changed in the interim. Yeah, and what's interesting is when John made his first video there in the January 2015, Mosul was relatively undamaged. Yet, in the ground battle which started to recapture Mosul from Islamic State... The following year, in October 2016, huge swathes of the city were destroyed then. And actually, Najafi Street almost completely destroyed, and the old city on the West Bank totally destroyed. For example, uh, the location where John rails, you know, against the drone overhead. When he appears in that section, he's standing by the Nineveh Wall, which is still relatively intact. ISIS actually destroyed the Nineveh Wall subsequent to John being there. So it made, you know, geolocating was... Not that easy, but it wasn't that difficult either. So when you did it, when you sort of have this rough route that he has followed and you're retracing his footsteps, I mean, what do you find? Do you find clues to what was happening in John Cantley's life at the time? Do you find people who know him? Absolutely, because, I mean, basically, I don't want to undermine my own efforts here, but (laughs) any fool could kind of geolocate where John Cantley was. (laughs) Yeah, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, Any fool could do it with just a mobile phone and a map, right? It was quite interesting that not many fools had tried to do it because everywhere I went, I said, hey, has anyone else come asking around John Cantley? And everyone said, no, nobody, you're the first. I mean, that that's significant because the Foreign Office still haven't told the family what's happened to him. You'd think there'd be a search, there'd be people out looking. Oh, not at all. Absolutely. No British representative, neither diplomat, nor cop, nor agent, had gone to Mosul to find out where John had appeared there. 
And here's the thing. The point of going to places where John Candy had been filmed was not to find the places, but to find people who had seen him. Hmm. Because everybody's got a little bit of the puzzle in seeing John Candy rather than the whole picture. And by speaking to people, the first thing you want to say was, you know, what kind of mood was John in? What kind of relationship did he seem to have with the camera team filming him? Do you know anyone else in this video so I can locate them and ask mm. them? You start building up a picture and a pattern and learning things. It's just a, an obvious kind of part of the legwork of an investigation. So it was both illuminating for what I learned and it was also illuminating to find out that I was oddly the first person asking about John Cantley. And the people you spoke to while you were there, the local Iraqis, what was their impression of John Cantley? It's not just those who have met John who've got an opinion about him. Everybody gets to see John Cantley's videos in Mosul because they're shown on Islamic State media kiosks during the era of Islamic State occupation of the city. Now, some Mosul people were fine with Islamic State but a majority of people were not at all. And the suffering they underwent in the hands of Islamic State themselves got worse and worse, so that thousands of Mosul people went missing because they were murdered by Islamic State mm. and their bodies thrown out in the desert. So when they saw films of John bouncing around saying how wonderful life is under Islamic State, they don't interpret John as being a prisoner. They see him as being an Islamic State propagandist. So sometimes when I was going around, people would be warm and friendly and describe in detail what it was like to have met John. And sometimes on occasions, they would look at the picture of the phone and saying, I don't care. I'm not going to help you. I don't care about that man. I'm not going to help you find out about him. They were angry about it. Wow. Yeah. And what was the response back in Britain? People who were watching that video where he seems more comfortable than ever, presenting, he looks like he's back in his element again. What are people back in Britain making of it? This video, more than any other, produced a sense of real ambiguity in John's role, particularly the scene when he's, you know, mocking the drone overhead. I think a lot of people felt very ill at ease with that. You know, he raises his hands, he's really jeering at the drone. And there's a flash of his old anger there. I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, John, whose side are you on here? I can look at it and say the guy's a prisoner. To be a chameleon that survives, you have to change colour. But many people looked at it. Iraqi people looked at it and thought, you're an Islamic State propagandist. A lot of people in the West looked at it with some confusion and a great degree of unease. As questions about John are increasingly being asked back at home, his situation amongst ISIS in Mosul is also about to take a turn. We'll be back in just a moment. But if you're interested in this podcast, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that brings together the best journalism from The Times and The Sunday Times. One story told in-depth every day. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax 
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. After Inside Mosul, there's an equally spirited appearance by John Cantley in Inside Aleppo a month later, where he praises Sharia courts and the running of the Islamic State. But that's followed by a long and ominous silence. We don't see John Cantley again for another 13 months. But during the course of those 13 months, there's a number of articles appear written by John, and clearly written by John as well. And these are really profoundly sad. The articles appeared in Dubik, Islamic State's online magazine. I mean, in one that appears online, The Anger Factory, it starts off by talking about Western policies which incite such anger in the Muslim world. And it's not a simplistic propaganda piece. It's fairly nuanced and has some fair points. But then he goes on into his own anger and oh, it's profoundly sad. He reflects on the attempts by his family to reinitiate contact with Islamic State. And in reflecting on that, he obviously observes that the Foreign Office seem to have made no effort to contact Islamic State themselves. He reflects on the efforts of his sister and his girlfriend, but also he recalls his father, Paul Cantley, in October 2014, from his hospital bed, had made a video. My name is Paul Cantley. Paul Cantley was a retired naval architect who'd also served in the Scots Guards. As a young man, he'd flown a little tiger moth plane down to Cape Town in record time and had the sort of adventures that could only have inspired his son. But now, in the video message, he looks fragile in his hospital bed. He's had throat surgery, and throughout the message, he's pressing down on the base of his neck, desperately trying to make his words heard. As a family, we experience great relief. Seeing and hearing John, knowing that he is alive. But this was followed by the feeling of despair and helplessness. He's very sick, he's bedridden, but his message for his son is clear. I want John to know how very proud I am of him. I can think of no greater joy than seeing him again. His father, from his hospital bed, where he tried to reach out with a message ostensibly for John's captors, but clearly hoping his son would see that message. 
to those holding John. Please know that he is a good man. He sought only to help the Syrian people. And I ask you, from all that is sacred, to help us and allow him to return home safely and to those he loves and to love him. Three weeks later, Paul Cantley died, having received no response. But Paul Cantley wanted his son to hear that message, and in an article he wrote for Dubik, it's clear that John was aware of it. In this article, Yanga Factory, John acknowledges a kind of farewell to his hopes of, of ever getting back really? to the UK. Yeah, and this is what he says. He's criticising the British government's refusal to negotiate with Islamic State. And he says, In my case, the British government was entirely happy to watch as an 81-year-old man made a film asking for my release from his hospital bed, then die because he didn't want to see his younger son executed. That was my dad. They were okay with a mother of three children making a video asking the Islamic State personally to reinitiate direct contact without getting involved themselves. That was my sister. And they were fine with a woman doing multiple interviews with the media, trying to drum up awareness for the situation while they did nothing. That was my fiance, whom I hope now has long since forgotten me and moved on. To them also I say thank you. Thank you so much for your tireless efforts. But let it go. Leave it be and get on with your lives, all of you. What can the remnants of one family, smashed and emotionally exhausted after two years of searching, be expected to do by themselves while the government, so full of intelligence officials, think tanks and pompous men in suits, sit back impassively and does nothing? If the Mujahideen asked me to shoot a video or write an article that in some small way sticks it to a political system that simply doesn't care about its citizens, despite endlessly saying the contrary, then I'd jump at the chance. I've seen dozens of videos of Cameron saying how much he values the lives of the British public, but actions sometimes speak louder than words, and that isn't what I've witnessed when it comes to the families of British citizens held in Syria. It's a strange thing to harbour real anger towards your government. For me, it's a new sensation. Politics never touched me before because I lived blissfully under the radar. I'd never voted in my life because I figured that all politicians were, by nature, public school liars who would just say whatever needed to be said to get into power and then do exactly the same as the leader before them except wearing a different coloured tie. Now, having been exposed firsthand to the cold indifference of politicians and how utterly ruthless they are when the chips are really down, I realise how right I was in the first instance. Despite being a prisoner, I've been shown respect and kindness, which I haven't seen from my own government. Even if I had the choice, could I honestly return to and live in a country that disowned the other Britons, all their families, and myself so contemptuously? I don't think so. Wow. 
I mean, you're right, there really is a sense of a farewell there. You know, there's a message to the people who love him, to his family, to his fiancée, to move on. Don't expect him back. The sense that he's not sure he has enough respect for his own country to want to go back. And then also just the hint that there have been some kindnesses shown to him within Islamic State. You can't contrive an anger in words like that. That's not contrived. Mm. That's something he really feels. It's very impassioned. It's very sad. And it's really angry. I mean, for you, somebody who, you know, who'd met John Cantley, who had an impression of him, how do you feel reading that article in The Beak? Extremely sad. Extremely sad. It matters not that, you know, I didn't know John Cantley. I had met him. I didn't particularly like him when I first met him. That's totally irrelevant. I've, by this stage, I have come to know John Cantley in quite a strange way through the voices and feelings of people who did know him or had met him. And, you know, I'd come to admire his resilience and initiative and incredible endurance in staying alive thus far. And then to read that piece, which however one reads it, feels like a farewell. Yeah, I find that profoundly moving. There's also just that sense of abandonment. Yeah, the incredible solitude, the loneliness. Yeah, the loneliness. His abandonment is total. It's not only that he has been abandoned by his country. He has been. But it's also that in trying to stay alive in that position of solitude, he's also become profoundly misunderstood by the people whose city he's working in, by Mosul people. They think he has turned. They think he's an Islamic State propagandist. You know, his solitude is, is total. He is without friend. Do you feel a sense that that could have been you? If things had worked out differently, you might have ended up being the hostage who needed rescuing and there is no help. The government isn't coming. Nobody's coming. That sense of isolation. I would have, you know, tried very hard to stay alive, but I couldn't have pulled it off like John Cantley did. I'm very clear in that. And my respect for his endeavour is the same respect as I would have for some explorer walking alone through the snowy wastes without support. I mean, that is a phenomenal achievement to have stayed alive that long in the hands of Islamic State. I mean, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. It is. And you clearly feel a real empathy for someone in John's position. I mean, you looked visibly moved reading that Dabiq article. You know, in that article, he's writing about people he loves. Who he knows he will likely never see again. I find that very, very painful. Yeah. There's a real acknowledgement in that article. I don't think I'm coming back. 
John Cantley did reappear in surprisingly different circumstances in a new film 13 months later. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder. This investigation has taken months of painstaking work all over the world, and it's one of many conducted by The Times and The Sunday Times. This is only possible thanks to our subscribers. So please support our journalism by subscribing today. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Despite a steady stream of Dabiq articles, for 13 long months, there are no more sightings of John Cantley. And when he does reappear in March 2016, he seems a changed man. His swagger as a presenter and inside Mosul has now gone, and so has his healthier appearance. We don't know what's happened in those 13 months, but something has clearly changed. As the war between the Islamic State and the US-led coalition continues, the Americans have launched a surprising new tactic against the Mujahideen. He's lost a lot of weight. He's moving quite stiffly. Sometimes his speech is a bit slurred. And he's no longer comfortable with whoever it is who's filming him. Using their $30 million F-18s and $100,000 missile systems, they've begun targeting not tanks, not trucks, not even the Mujahideen, but Islamic State media kiosks. I mean, he looks like he's aged. He looks like he's aged about 15 years. He doesn't look like he's enjoying any of this, but also like his face, it just looks like you can see the worry lines. He either looks like he's in pain yeah. or he's really worrying. This new film is the start of a four-part series. You can tell he's working with a new crew. He doesn't look as comfortable, and the sound quality isn't as good as the earlier films. But John Cantley has been brought back to criticise the coalition airstrikes that are suddenly pounding Islamic State targets in Mosul, including their media kiosks. These are the little cinemas which are are present at almost every major roundabout or street intersection in Mosul that Islamic State have been using to show off their propaganda films, among them John Cantley's films. The American-led coalition started blowing up these media kiosks. And it's really interesting how annoyed Islamic State were by this. You'd think they'd have plenty of other things to worry about, but it really irritated them because John's next film is a propaganda film in which he mocks the coalition for wasting so much time in blowing up these kiosks. It's really just amazing, given the amount of money that America is spending on this war, that they will go to the effort of destroying a small shack like this in the middle of Mosul and putting all the people that live around here in huge danger. In fact, blowing up those kiosks stopped Mosul people being forced to watch Islamic State films. So John appears in March 2016 at a number of kiosk locations once they've been hit. The noise you can hear in the background is them having to fix the damage of the bomb strike here on the other day. Such attacks 
approve the failed strategy of the American air campaign, the Americans are so bankrupt of intelligence that this is all they have left to target. He is criticizing, in that first video, the expenditure. He's like basically saying the coalition are wasting millions of dollars blowing up corrugated shacks and TV screens. But behind that, is clearly an annoyance on behalf of Islamic State that they're losing their ability through these strikes to message local people. So that's the first one. Very quickly after that, July 2016, Mosul University has been hit and extensively damaged. Today we're at Mosul University, or at least what's left of Mosul University. If you look behind me, you'll see it's pretty much been completely smashed to pieces. In John's next video, summer of that year, he is by some of the ruined buildings within the university, of course saying, why would the coalition bomb a place of education? Well, we know why. The whole site was actually controlled by Islamic State. Students had been stopped from coming in for some months previously. The coalition apparently had evidence that Islamic State were using Mosul University to manufacture chemical weapons. Interestingly, John Cantley was held for quite a long period of time, either in the neighbourhood just beside the university. But even though John Cantley had lived somewhere around the university, when he presents a video decrying the coalition for bombing it, you can tell his heart's not really in it. He looks gaunt and his style is more muted. It looks really wooden by this point. John's success in conveying a propaganda message earlier was often his anger, Mm. a very real anger. It wasn't contrived. But in these kind of propaganda messages, they've blown up the university, they've blown up media kiosks. Then later, actually, in December 2016, he said, they've blown up bridge and they've damaged water supplies. It's very wooden. There's no flair or emotion there. He looks physically dreadful, I mean, really bad. He is very much, again, a captive and clearly physically suffering. Has he been injured? Has he been injured in an airstrike? Or has he been injured because he's being beaten and held somewhere? Again, it's unclear, but his relationship with his captors has changed. But then the ground war starts. The battle to liberate Mosul begins. Good evening, a pivotal moment tonight in the fight against ISIS. Tens of thousands of Iraqi and Kurdish troops are about to launch a massive offensive to retake Iraq's second largest city. The northern city of Mosul has been a symbol of ISIS strength, a place they've held for more than two years now. But now, with unprecedented support from the U.S., ISIS could be pushed out of that stronghold. You expected they'd advance this far, this fast. But the closer they get to Mosul, so the resistance only grows. In Mosul streets, life or death is decided in the blink of an eye. Just meters away, the so-called Islamic State. Mosul has been more or less encircled by the summer of 2016. Then in October that year, the battle to recapture the city begins and Iraqi units move across the Nineveh plains 
capturing towns back from ISIS and pushing in at first into the eastern side of the city at the start of a very long, very violent and very, very bloody battle. Islamic State pretty much fight street for street and casualties are extremely high on both sides. John next appears in a film shot around one of the key moments in that battle. The battle to control the Salam Hospital in Mosul. On the morning of December the 6th, 2016, an armoured unit from the 9th Division broke through Islamic State lines, moved down the road into Al Salam Hospital, burst through the gates using tanks, Humvee vehicles and armoured personnel carriers. Out of the back of the armoured personnel carriers burst dozens and dozens of Iraqi soldiers, jubilant with what they saw was a quick victory in seizing the hospital from Islamic State. So I've been to the Salam Hospital a number of times in John Cantley's footsteps because this is the last place that John Cantley has ever seen. And I've spoken to a number of staff who were there the day of the battle. We were inside the, the hospital. This is what one of the pathologists told me. Many other doctors tried to escape from the hospital. But this was very difficult because ISIS closed the doors. They prevent us from going outside. Now, the staff were really relieved, to begin with, but it was a very short-lived relief. Because what happened, first of all, was that the Islamic State fighters already in the hospital were not all killed, neither killed nor overwhelmed. So there are ISIS soldiers who are already there as just part of the security of the hospital? Exactly. They started fighting back from within the main hospital building at the Iraqi soldiers who were around the inside of the hospital perimeter and took over a key building within the hospital complex, which was the H-shaped doctor's accommodation. The ISIS members told us to go to the basement, to the ground floor. Of the big building? Of the The big building. All of us, the patients, the relatives of the patients, and the staff. During that day, there's a lot of shooting. They get some of the staff and patients into the basement of the hospital and they're fighting up the stairs against the Iraqi soldiers who are trying to get down the stairs into the basement. Then you get hundreds more Islamic State pouring from other areas of the city to totally surround the Iraqi soldiers who have got into the hospital perimeter. And you get a succession of suicide vehicles accelerating down the street and detonating in the cordon positions set up by Iraqi tanks and armoured vehicles. So in no time at all, a matter of like an hour and a half, the Iraqi soldiers who had been celebrating their victory and what they thought was securing this hospital are suddenly fighting for their lives, completely surrounded. With one officer, a colonel, trying to reassure his men, reinforcements are coming, reinforcements are coming. No reinforcements come. The battle goes on and on and gets worse and worse. The suicide vehicles continue to target the cordon positions. The Iraqi soldiers are now completely cut off. They get no further support. And one by one, the soldiers start to fall dead or wounded. I mean, staff I spoke to who sheltered in that building with the soldiers were describing hand grenades getting chucked through the windows. Wow. Dead and dying soldiers lying on the floor. They're dead and wounded were dragged into the cafeteria of the accommodation. The remaining soldiers in the H-shaped building, one by one, 
are killed during the course of the fighting throughout the night, which ends finally on the morning of Wednesday the 7th of December. The last Iraqi soldiers' bodies are dragged out behind motorbikes and trucks and hung from a bridge by Islamic State, including the body of the colonel. The scene looks like apocalypse. There's just burned armoured personnel carriers, tanks, Humvees, dead Iraqi soldiers everywhere, complete wreckage. The hospital is totally unusable. I mean, it's just shredded by shrapnel and, and bullets. And there, in the middle of this apocalyptic scene, on the balcony of the H-shaped building, John Cantley appears. <laughs> Okay, we're absolutely on the front line now of the fight here in Mosul. And behind me, it looks like a scene out of a Steven Spielberg film, except this is for real. We see John standing on the balcony of the H-shaped building. He's wearing a dark coat, black combat-style trousers, which have been rolled up above his ankle in Islamic style, and some odd kind of white pumps, which are slightly jarring with the rest of his regalia. He's also wearing a helmet which seems to be part of his role of a war correspondent. Mm. And he's presenting the scene of this battle in the Salaam Hospital with a backdrop of all these twisted and burnt-out vehicles. Come with me. You've got to be careful of your step here. There's a lot of grenades and unexploded ordnance all around. Look at this Humvee, just absolutely destroyed. Nothing else left of it. Now, speaking with some of the Mujahideen, they say the Iraqi army took the bait. This is exactly what they wanted them to do. It is a major victory for Islamic State. It's not decisive at all. They lose the battle, they lose the city. But within that battle, this is a major setback for the Iraqi army and a major victory for Islamic State. And we see John Cantley once again electrified in his presentation in what is to be his last ever video. <laughs> The Mujahideen drawn them in to the center here of Mosul, into this base here, the Iraqi army here with all their armored vehicles. You can count them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, bulldozer, BMPs just blown apart like they're little plastic toys. He has this incredible energy, and some of his kind of slightly sardonic humour comes, he bends down, picks up a burnt-out American M16 rifle. Look here. Warning, that's uh, courtesy of the United States, a Hellfire missile which has been dropped in here. This used to be an M16 rifle, but it's not going to do much to anyone now. He tosses it and then he said, come on down, his presentation's back and he sort of beckons for you to follow him down into the yard where there's all this destruction and death there. And some of it's quite unattractive. You can tell that someone off camera at one point rolls him an Iraqi soldier's helmet. Mm. So he picks it up and then tosses it over his shoulder. So, oh, here we are. This used to belong to an Iraqi soldier, but uh, I don't think he's going to be needing it now, huh? It's very kind of dismissive gesture. It's quite unappealing. It gets worse too. But there are a number of other things to note. His presentational style is fantastic. 
and he's clearly energised by the scene. But he still looks dreadful. Mm. There's a slight slur in his speech, which is really unusual. And he's looking quite gaunt. He's looking terrible. He's looking like a spectre of death. He's looking like a spectre of death. Worst follows. So he goes around the yard in the hospital. I've wandered around that yard, was seen where he walked many, many times. Then the video ends with him crouching beside the dead body of an Iraqi soldier. Another Iraqi soldier bites the dust. And this is exactly what's waiting for all the Iraqi soldiers in this area. The Mujahideen draw them in and their anti-tank hunting teams smash them in their vehicles like this one, this, this fellow next to me. And this is pretty much all that's waiting for the Iraqi army here in Mosul. This is the last image we have of John Cantley, crouched beside the dead body of an Iraqi soldier in the ruins of the Salam Hospital. It's an uncomfortable image, but it's the final clue to John Cantley's fate. So we've got to examine, in working out John's fate in Mosul, what we do know and what happens next. So, the battle for the Al-Salam hospital occurs on the 6th and 7th of December. Islamic State continue to hold that hospital for a subsequent three weeks. During that period, it became a major headquarters for Islamic State, particularly the basement area. It had a huge tunnel and basement complex. Now, during the course of the last three weeks, right up until the moment it was finally liberated by the Iraqi army, it was hit by 25 separate airstrikes, including one huge strike, which took down one wing of the hospital from its roof all the way down to the basement, which it completely devastated. So it's under attack. It's under attack and heavy attack, and yet it is used by Islamic State as their headquarters. Now, you've got to bear in mind that at the same time, Mosul is surrounded by the Iraqi army. By December 2016, when John's seen there, it would be very, very, very difficult for Islamic State to get anybody out of Mosul. They might have managed it a couple of months earlier, but by December 2016, it's really difficult to get anybody out through the Iraqi positions that have been circled. Mm. Then you've got to remember that subsequent to that battle, the campaign to liberate Mosul goes on. Islamic State are driven back into a smaller and smaller and smaller circle until all they hold is the Al-Nuri Mosque from which Baghdadi had launched the caliphate in the summer of 2014. This is the spiritual leader of ISIS. Exactly. And that's where Islamic State make their last stand. Savage fighting, May, June and July. Islamic State blow up the Al-Nuri Mosque rather than have it captured by the Iraqi army. Then they make their final stand along one street in the second week of July 2017. And the final video from AMAC, the Islamic State news agency for whom John had worked at the start of the Inside Mosul series, appears on July the 16th, 2017, shows this smoking street, body stacked at the side, a few of the last Islamic State fighters waiting with their weapons for what follows. And what does follow is a massed artillery barrage which levels that street in just to a kind of beach of, of ground sand. It's completely pulverised. And with that, Islamic State are annihilated in Mosul. And walking back through that area again, just three weeks ago, 
you can still see dead bodies sticking out of the rubble even now. You know, tibia, femur, wow. suicide belts, you know, bits of hair. There's hundreds of bodies still in the old city. In Mosul, the word missing describes the fate of thousands. John Cantley went missing in Mosul. The Americans keeping an overwatch were trying to locate the positions of hostages in the Middle East say they lost all trace of John Cantley after he was last seen in the Al-Salam hospital in December 2016. That's what the Americans say. I mean, it's hard to see, given how the city's being pummeled from all sides, it's hard to see how anyone survives that. I don't see how John did survive that. The last glimpse we have of John Cantley amid the rubble of the Salam Hospital with a few dramatic flourishes that reveal flashes of the old John. That video is the last time we see John Cantley alive. It's hard to see how anyone could survive the carnage that followed in the Battle of Mosul. But two years later, on the 5th of February 2019, news breaks that for many rekindles the mystery. What did happen to John Cantley? The British government says it believes high-profile ISIS hostage John Cantley is still alive. The journalist was frequently used in the terror group's propaganda videos, but he hasn't appeared in any more in the last two years. Next time on Last Man Standing. Someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, British minister has just said that the hostage John Cantley may still be alive. I turned immediately to him and said, hey, what do you mean? He said, Ben Wallace, British security minister at the time, had made a comment that John Cantley may still be alive. Or more than that, that the British authorities believed he was still alive. So I turned straight to this Kurdish commander and said, have you heard this? He said, you should ask British special forces more about this. Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matthew Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. And the executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford. Kate Ford.